Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 11. I will go over verses 1 through 18. The context is this in the last part of chapter 10. We have seen Peter who went up from Joppa to Caesarea, preached to the Gentiles there, Cornelius' house, Cornelius' slaves, his servants, people who were employed by Cornelius. Holy Spirit fell on them, they got saved, then they got baptized in water. They got saved, baptized in spirit, and baptized in water, and they were Gentiles, and that was the big deal because Peter was Jews, and Jews didn't think that they had any dealings with Gentiles. Well, Peter was pretty open-minded about the whole thing, but he comes back to Jerusalem in Acts 11 and verses 1 through 18. We're going to find out that there was a lot of people who didn't like his opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. A lot of Jewish people didn't like it, and so Peter has to defend himself. So we start now in Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him, saying, You visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. And as I said in the last audio, that's one thing Gentiles didn't do. Excuse me, Jews didn't do with Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. That was an expression of intimate fellowship, and Jews didn't have intimate fellowship with Gentiles and it because they were trying to keep their religion pure, and that was not going to do it. So... First thing we noticed, it was the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard. So now we're not talking about just a discussion amongst the 12 apostles back in Jerusalem, where they were located, but also the brothers. And the NIV Study Bible points out that this is an example of consensus, consensual decision-making in the early church. I'm going to give you four others, excuse me, five others, uh, examples where the church made decisions by consensus and not by the Pope Peter. Or not by the elders either, but by all of them, all the brothers, the apostles and the brothers, it says right here in verse 1. And so they had a little meeting, had a little bit of contention going on, a little bit of discussion when they heard that the Gentiles, that's referring to Cornelius' house, had welcomed God's message. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, that means when he returned from Caesarea and went up to Jerusalem, I think it was about, what, 70 miles or so? You got back up, and you always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill compared to everywhere else. When he got back, and you would think, oh, hot dog, man, this is wonderful. The Gentiles are believing the gospel and the church is spreading. Oh, no. What do the legalists say? You visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. Legalists are pinched faced bigots, usually. Now, I could say, I could argue here that they maybe, maybe weren't quite that bad because they had a lot of shall we say, family tradition they had to overcome in order to get over their prejudice about Gentiles and the law. So I'm going to give them a little bit more credit. But I will say this, just to make an application here, that most legalists are very unpleasant people. I'll give you an example. I was in a church in China, in a certain city, I won't mention where, and the church had been sent there, established 10, 15 years earlier by a fundamentalist mission organization. They were all fundamentalists and went over there and they started saying, you know, this legalism just ain't working. And one of the instances that that caused the division between the fundamentalist sending agency and the church was one day, one of the brothers in the church took a Chinese guy up to celebrate tomb sweeping day. That's the day the Chinese go out and they honor their ancestors by sweeping off the leaves off the tombs. And they burn a few candles, burn some money, and that kind of thing. And this Chinese, they were talking about death, apparently, because it was a tomb-sweeping occasion. And the Christian guy, foreigner, led the Chinese guy to the Lord and came back. And they just had come back from tomb-sweeping because you have to wear 
you know, you, you don't wear your Sunday go to meet and close to tomb sweeping day. So they came back, and I think one of them was in shorts, and because it was hot. And they go in there and told the testimony. Everybody gets excited. So the leader of the church takes a picture of it and sends it back to the mission agency and says, Isn't this wonderful? This Chinese guy got saved. Here's what the letter came back and said. Why are you allowing somebody to wear shorts in church? It's typical legalists. They, they stress the things that are not meaningful at all and completely ignore the wonderful things that God is doing. Oh, it's the history of the Pharisees. Well, anyway, this is the same thing here. Instead of being happy, they got upset about legalism. There's nothing in the law of Moses that says that you can't eat with a Gentile. That's all Pharisees' additions to the law of the traditions of men. And by the way, these people in Judea who heard that the Gentiles in Cornelius' house had gotten saved, they, that, that phrase might also refer to the Samaritans who had believed, as John Gill points out in Acts 8.14. Remember when Philip went up there? When the apostles were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them due to Philip's evangelistic activity. So the word's spreading, and the word's getting out, and the legalists in Jerusalem are getting worried. Instead of being happy, they're getting worried. Now notice it's the apostles and the brothers who were involved in this verbal controversy here. In verse 1, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the message had gone to the Gentiles. The NIV Study Bible says that this is one of the many examples of consensus decision-making in the early church, and I'm going to give you I'm going to list them for you, all out of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we have Matthias was replaced, chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. Let me read that real quickly. During those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The brethren was about 120, and he says in verse 16, Brothers, the scriptures have talked about, talked about Judas fallen, and so in verse 23, so they, referring to the brothers, proposed two candidates to replace Judas, Justice and Matthias. So they're, they're the, the brethren, not just Peter, not just Pope Peter chose the replacement of Judas, and that was a big decision. Then the choice of the seven so-called deacons in Jerusalem, Acts 6, 5, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose and the, the Stephen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the other six guys. In Acts 11, verse 22, which we'll talk about in our next audio, the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas up to the Antioch church to check out the fact that they were Gentiles from Cyprus and Cyrene in northern Africa. They were preaching in Antioch. Whoa, this is news. We got Gentiles preaching to Jewish believers, to Jews. That's really strange. Acts 11:22. Then the report about them, these Cypriots and Cyrenians preaching the gospel, the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. So the church at Jerusalem, not Peter, not the elders, but the church which I assume is the whole, the whole church. We have the Jerusalem Council, famous Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, to discuss the legalism problem. That council welcomes delegates from Antioch. The whole church does it. Acts 15:4. when they, this is Paul and Barnabas and the others that came with Paul and Barnabas came down from Antioch, when they arrived at Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, they were welcomed by whom? By the church, by the apostles, and the elders. By everybody, not just the apostles and the elders. And then the Jerusalem Council made its decision. I'm going to use J.P. Green's little translation here because it overcomes a def defect, I think, in the English in the more loose English translations. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with all the assembly. That's everybody. Actually, that part is clear in, in, in most of the English translations. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with all the assembly. They all made the decision to send chosen men from them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to deliver the decision of the council in a letter. And so they sent 
Judas, Barnabas, and Silas up there. Excuse me, Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas uh, up there to Antioch. Verse, in verse 23 says, Writing by their hand these things, the apostles and the elders and the brothers. That's how they addressed the letter. That was how they signed the letter. Excuse me, the apostles and the elders and the brothers. Consensual decision making. Now, the English translation of verse 23 says, the, a lot of them say, the apostles and the elders who are your brothers, or your brothers who are the apostles and the elders, which kind of kills my point. But that is not, I got the literal translation, is not necessarily how it has to be translated. And I suspect that the translator bias is going to be toward hierarchy and ecclesiastical, ecclesiasticism, maybe I can make up that word. Now think about this, this is the first pope now, right? Now, this is proof positive that Peter was not considered the first pope of the church. The brethren wouldn't have treated Peter this way had he been the vicar of Christ on earth. As Adam Clark points out, he comes back, he's all excited, and they say, you ate with Gentiles. What's the matter with you, Peter? Nobody's going to do that to a pope. And if Peter were the pope, he would have said, no, you be quiet. I'm in charge here. I'll, I'll preach to who I want to preach to. He didn't do that. And good thing, he had to explain to them what was going on. They had to discuss it and work it out. Just in, even in secular, I used to teach secular business management, and it used to be years ago everybody would brag about Japanese management style because it was consensus-oriented. It took longer to make a decision, but once the decision was made, everybody bought into it. And you were less likely to make foolish decisions because you because it did take longer to make a decision, so your decisions weren't as precipitous. Well, anyway, we go to verse 4. Peter began to explain to them in an orderly sequence, or that's the Home of Christian Study Bible, the NIV says precisely. In other words, he's, he's going to lay it out word for word what happened. So they will understand that, hey, this is a genuine move of God, and you've got no excuse for not believing me. This is, a, a, by the way, I love that phrase, orderly sequence. It would be so good if people who are teaching in churches today would do that, would get and teach their teaching in an orderly fashion so the people listening can understand where the person's going. If you're going to go down a rabbit trail, go down real quick and come back and stay with your outline. Oh, but outlines mean that I'm not led by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, well then don't have an outline and then get up there and just wander all over the place, confuse everybody, and then claim it was the Holy Spirit that did it. Well, that's unfortunately what you see so many times. But anyway, Peter began to explain to them in an orderly sequence, and I'll point out that Peter didn't worry about not being led by the Holy Spirit, did he? Saying, Peter goes on, I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a visionary state an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven as it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. Then I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. So these animals came down from heaven, which shows the origin was from God. And some of the animals, most of the animals, in fact, were unclean. Wild beasts, reptiles, nasty things, snakes, salamanders, alligators, crocodiles, you name it, vultures. And God says, Eat it. In other words, the whole point of the vision is very clear. Hey, don't call things unclean that I've considered clean. These Gentiles are clean as far as you're concerned. Go witness to them. By the way, somebody, I don't know if I forgot which commentator our commentary I read this in, said that the four-footed animals were both clean and unclean. The clean animals representing the Jews and the unclean animals representing the Gentiles are all together, all considered clean. If that's so, that's, that fits the theme here pretty good. The voice that Peter heard was either God, the Father, God, or Jesus, who knows doesn't matter. We go to verses 8 and 9. No, Lord, Peter continues recounting his experience in Yapa. No, Lord, I said, for nothing common or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter was a good Jew. He never ate a shrimp. 
He never ate a slice of bacon. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call common. That voice I said could be God or Jesus. John Gill says it could be an angel, actually. Again, it doesn't matter. We're assuming it was God somehow. What God has made clean, you must not call common. That means unclean. Set aside for secular and profane uses and not set aside to God for holy uses. And basically that vision is saying, Peter, get up and go witness to those unclean Gentiles. Except they're not unclean, they're clean. Verse 10, Acts 11. Now this happened three times, Peter continues, telling the brothers in Jerusalem. Now this happened three times and then everything was drawn up again into heaven. What happened three times? Well, the sheep being let down, the voice saying, take it neat. It could be the uh, it could be the sheep was let down once, and the voice happened three times, or it could be the sheep came down three times. I like the idea of the sheep coming down three times; makes it more dramatic. We go to verses 11 through 14 in Acts 11. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. Now, all of this is we've already gone over actually in Acts 10. Peter repeats it almost verbatim, and I'm surprised Luke spent so much time rehashing it, but he did. The three men arrived from Caesarea. That would be that was two slaves and a soldier that Cornelius had sent down to Joppa from Caesarea, which was in the north on the coast there. But I think it was I think it was 30 miles up the coast. Verse 12. Peter continues. Then spirit. The, then the spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. And Peter, of course, would have doubts about going to Gentiles' house. But he said, Hey, don't, the Holy Spirit said, Don't worry about it, Peter. No doubts. These six brothers accompanied me, and the six brothers are the two slaves and a soldier from Cornelius' house that came down to Joppa, and then Peter took three brothers that he had either, they were from Joppa or they had come with him from Jerusalem, we don't know, but three of his traveling companions, all six of those together, plus Peter, goes up and went into the man's house, verse 12. At the end of verse 12, now verse 13, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, that's Cornelius, reported to the Peter and his and his three traveling companions, how he had seen the angel standing in his house. And there's an interesting point here. The angel didn't worry about going into an unclean Gentile's house, did he? So there, so that's something we might not think about too much. We don't think about angels worrying about clean or unclean, but that angel went in there. He wasn't worried about it. And so now we have Peter is relaying the message that Cornelius had given to him, and, and, and Cornelius is relating to uh, Peter, what to Cornelius, uh, his words go to Yop and call for Simon, who is also called Peter. So we kind of got a triple hearsay here. 14, he, Peter, will speak a message to you that you and all your household will be saved by. And that's, of course, what happened, as we know from the previous chapter. Now we go to verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. Uh, this was so nice. Because as soon as he started speaking, who was there? Well, Cornelius had gotten his family there, and his and I think his nearby neighbors had come. can't remember about the neighbors, but I'm, I wouldn't surprise me if they were there. But his family and his servants were there, not to mention the soldiers that he was in charge of, some of the God-fearing people that Cornelius knew. And they were prepared because they had already been praying about God. They were God-fearers. They were already influenced by the Jewish religion during their time there in Jerusalem, in Israel. And so they were prepared, and that just goes to show when it comes times to harvest, if the planting has been done right and the sowing and the harvest is, is grown a little bit, when it comes times to reap the harvest, is what Peter's doing here. It's easy to reap. He just he hardly got the words out of his mouth. As I, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. Now, the beginning is Pentecost, as John Gill points out. 
And we'll see here that this was an evidentiary thing because at Pentecost, remember, all, everybody started speaking in tongues. It's one thing to say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit came down on these believers at Cornelius' house and they got saved. And, of course, the first thing, the people in Jerusalem would say, how do you know they got saved? You can't see somebody getting regenerated. You ate in a Gentile's house. But when they're all speaking in tongues, just like what happened at Pentecost, well, now we got a more objective piece of evidence, and the Judaizers in Jerusalem would have a hard time refuting that. So Peter is trying to tie what happened in Cornelius' house back to what happened at Pentecost. We go to verse 16. Then I remember the word of the Lord. This is when he saw everybody speaking in tongues. And how he said, this is Peter again relating this to the to the Judaizer, to the brethren in Jerusalem. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he, the Lord, said, John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now there you see that the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which happened in Cornelius' house, that word received is used in Acts 10, is here tied with, it's already been tied with Pentecost, just as at the beginning in verse 15, and now it's tied together with the phrase baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying is, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is exactly equal to being filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, which is exactly filled with receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts 10. I did all the connection of all three of those terms in the last chapter. I won't go over it again. But just when you see these places where the Holy Spirit falls on people in Acts, there's five of them, I'll go over them real quick. Jesus said you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, that happened in Jerusalem, except Luke records that as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So now baptism of the Holy Spirit equals filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the same thing. Jesus called that being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 9. Acts 8, I skipped Acts 8. There they received the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, that's a separate. We haven't tied that to filling and baptism in the Holy Spirit yet. But then when we get to Acts 10, it says that the Holy, they received the Holy Spirit, and Peter ties that back to Acts 2 in these verses I just read. So if receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts 10 is the same thing as being filled in Acts 2, and being filled in Acts 2 is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, as Peter, as Jesus said in John, I don't have the site in front of me, in, in John, we got all three tied together, received, filling, and baptism. That's a slam dunk, folks. And the reason I emphasize that is because there's so many non-charismatic people love to say, oh, you know, they like to fudge the issue. They don't like that term baptized in the Holy Spirit. But anyway, we go to verses 17 and 18 of Acts 11, and we'll finish it up. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift, that's what happened at Pentecost, the same gift. He's just mentioned that in the previous verses, just as at the beginning, just as on us at the beginning. Verse 17, therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's referring to his experience at Pentecost, the same gift, the same gift, which would be the gift of the Holy Spirit or maybe the gift of tongues. People debate that. Uh... The Holy Spirit, John Gill and, John, and Adam Clark suggest that. John Gill suggested it was the gift of tongues. I tend to think it was the gift of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? So Peter's experience at Pentecost came, stood him in good stead here when the same experience happened at in Cornelius' house. When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. God has granted repentance. That means repentance is a gift, because to grant equals to give. They're synonyms. So God has given repentance. So where does repentance come from? On the part of the sinner who repents, or is it a gift from God? Well, that's a little bit of Calvinist Arminian theology there. I'll let you decide that. I know what I believe, because this is what it says right here. God has granted repentance. And I believe that those Jews were speaking the truth 
there. The NIV Study Bible says of that, that repentance is granted by divine action rather than human choice. God opens the door to the Gentiles. Now, repentance literally in the Greek means a change of mind. And by the way, faith and repentance go to the same, or really two aspects of the same thing. You believe. If you look through the Gospels about when people get saved, you see the word faith or belief, and then sometimes you see repentance, sometimes you see both. And I believe it's because it's two sides of the same coin. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to change your mind, and you're going to turn away, turn your back on the sins that you were loving before. Now, so the Peter convinced by his testimony the Judaizers there in Jerusalem that the Gentiles were going to be let in the church. This is a big deal, folks, a real big deal. But was the problem over? No, the Gentile problem lasted a long, long time. For example, the Jerusalem Council, wasn't that what it was all about? Acts 15:5. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now notice that some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees, even the Pharisees who had gotten converted and believed in Christ, going to heaven just like you and me. But even they said, no, well, they believe, but we got to add something to it. they got to get circumcised, and they got to keep the law of Moses. And of course, that's a whopping big error. If you think about it, what, what was, how many of the books were opposed to legalism? Well, how about the book of Galatians? You foolish Galatians. You began with the Spirit, now you're going to continue with the law. How about the book of Romans? Paul talks about how he's under the law in Romans 7 and all that. I mean, on and on and on. Law, 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 law. And then, of course, in Colossians, against the people who talk about eating meat and celebrating certain fast days. It's legalism everywhere. It's the And it's true in the church today. It is the human condition. We love to do things to think we can justify ourselves and our pride before God. And it needs to be stomped on in your life and my life and everybody else's Christian life. As soon as you see it raising its ugly head, you need to say, legalism, get the Gehenna out of here. I don't have nothing to do with you. I only want Jesus, nothing else. Has another instance where it showed up in Acts 21. Peter had just, uh, John, excuse me, Paul had just come back from the three missionary journeys. He shows up in Jerusalem. He goes to see James, one of the pillar apostles at Jerusalem, and he sees James and the other elders there. And when they, James and the elders at Jerusalem, heard it, heard heard about the, Paul's missionary journeys and success amongst the Gentiles, they glorified God and said, "You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews they are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the laws." Well, these are believing Jews who are still zealous for the law. But they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. And so Paul had to go along with paying a, a, a Nazarite vow for four Jewish people to say, look, if you want to be Jews, be Jewish by custom, that's fine, but just don't go around saying you've got to get saved by keeping the law of Moses. You want to keep the law of Moses because you're Jewish as an ethnic thing, fine, but don't go around saying that you've got to be circumcised in order to get saved. I'm going to finish up this audio talking about this experience at Cornelius' house. I should have mentioned it in the last audio, and I did. It was an experience I had in China. I was tasked with teaching a, a worker, they call them Tuandui, a worker's apostolic work teams, basically bands of apostles going around. They they leave their local churches, and in fact, they travel, and so they a lot of times leave their family back home, and they leave their jobs back home, and they go out and they preach the gospel, and they have tremendous success. That's why the gospel's growing so fast in China. And I was in, there was about, I guess, about 50 people in these little narrow benches in a sweltering hot farmhouse in Liaoning province, and I didn't know these people, and the the brother who had asked me to come up there to teach with him, 
Well, he didn't tell me too much about them. I didn't know anything about them. But I knew from my experience in China that they had a whole, whole lot of trouble with water baptism. Lots of crazy ideas about water baptism. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach on water baptism. And so I got the idea of teaching on the three baptisms of Jesus. The water baptism and then Holy Spirit baptism and the baptism of suffering. I figured these Chinese people had suffered a lot and that they would like to hear something about suffering and how God helps them endure through it and comforts them in it and so forth. So I was just going to talk about baptism in water and baptism in suffering. And I just mentioned the baptism of the Holy Spirit and didn't say anything about it. I assumed that they were already baptized in the Holy Spirit because so many Christians in China are and didn't say anything about it. Well, during the break, somebody came up to me and said uh, they want to know about the other baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, sure. So we had a special session. I got up and went through the five Pentecostal passages and Acts and and I can't remember whether I said, do you want this? I, I think I, know, I don't think I said that because I, think, I thought they already believed it. I just thought they didn't understand it. So I was trying to explain it. And somebody, I think if I remember correctly, somebody actually came up and said, we want this. We want to pray for it. I said, okay, we'll pray for it. So we prayed for it. And I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like it. It reminded me of Acts 10. All of a sudden, it was just like at Cornelius' house. All of a sudden, it was just like in Acts 2. They, were sta- they stood up. Of course, you know, Chinese people are very reserved. They sit there on these chairs on these little tiny wooden benches and wooden chairs for hours and listen to you talk, and they never say anything because they're taught never to interrupt the great teacher, you know. That's just their culture. That's the way they do things. And so they're very quiet and reserved, and I'm used to that. And all of a sudden, they start standing up, speaking, and and I didn't even hardly say anything. I didn't have time. It was just a 15-minute run-through through five passages and acts. I hadn't hardly talked about tongues, and except in passing as I went through those passages. They didn't know what tongues were. And all of a sudden, they stood up and started staggering all around this room uh, with their hands up in the air, their eyes closed, crying, tears running down their face. It, the noise was deafening. It was the, it was at the jet engine level, and I'm sitting there and I said, wow, what is going on here? So I started listening. I got curious because they were, I was wondering whether they were speaking in Chinese or Cantonese. I can recognize Chinese and Cantonese, but I listened real close. I said, nope. That's tongues. They ain't, they're not speaking Chinese or Cantonese. They certainly weren't speaking English, of course. And so I got to see what it might have been like at Cornelius' house. It was, it was one of the high points of my life to see something like that. Well, at any rate, I'm going to shut it down here at the end of Acts 11, verse 18. We'll take up the next, in the next audio, we'll take a look. We'll move from the Church of Jerusalem, the Jewish church, and we'll look at the Gentile church at the Church of Antioch, see what's going on up there to the north in Antioch of Syria. Hope you stay, stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>